Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Well, good morning. You can go ahead and take a seat. Did you know that the reason that we sing the beginning of our services is actually not to warm up for the message? Did you know that? Oh, that's not just warm up, but what we, what we see in Scripture constantly over and over again is that God reveals himself and then his people respond. Revelation, response, revelation, response. And so as we sing together at the beginning of our services every morning, the reason, part of the reason why we incorporate so much scripture into that singing is to have something to respond to, that God has revealed himself in scripture. And our hope that is that God has been revealing himself to you in his scriptures throughout the week so that when you come into this place that you have already brought with you something to respond to. Because when we gather together every Sunday, we actually are entering into a conversation that God has already started. He has revealed that to us by his word. And so I'm really grateful for our worship team for helping us respond to the way that God has already revealed himself. So if we haven't met, my name is Jake. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to ask you a question uh, real simply. Do you know someone who has weird tendencies or who's maybe, like, who's maybe superstitious? I'll give you a couple of examples. So legendary tennis player Bjorn Borg would grow a beard in preparation for Wimbledon, and then he would wear the same Fila polo every match during Wimbledon, thinking that somehow that would bring him good luck. Did you know that Charles Dickens uh, carried a compass around in his pocket, and whenever he would go to sleep, he would always sleep with his head facing north, wherever he was, because he thought that that would somehow bring him you know, more creativity or maybe, maybe more, maybe you already knew this, where Michael Jordan would wear his North Carolina uh, shorts under his Bulls shorts every game. That, that's, in fact, why basketball shorts, one of the reasons why basketball shorts got longer was because Jordan would, like, wanted to cover up his North Carolina shorts. Uh, Winston Churchill, ironically, would pet black cats for good luck. You'd think it'd be the other way around, right? And maybe, maybe you didn't know this, Dr. Seuss had an extensive hat collection of over 300 hats. And when he was feeling a bit of writer's block or not creative, he would go into his hat wardrobe and pick out an interesting hat, put it on his head, and sit there and wait for the inspiration to come. You could say that maybe Dr. Seuss was, in fact, the true cat in the hat. You could say that. A handful of years ago, Otis Elevators, the, one of the biggest elevator manufacturers in the world, they estimated that, that, near, that about 85% of the elevators that they build don't have a button for the 13th floor. 85%. That's almost all the elevators. Like if you get into a building that has more than 13 floors and you see a 13th floor button, count that, I don't know if you count that lucky, I don't know, like 13 floors, they, they just don't exist because somehow they're a little spooky, right? My son told me recently, actually, that uh, he learned that they're, I forget which, which hotel it is, but they actually have a 13th floor, and year-round, it's decorated with, hell, with Halloween decorations to kind of lean into the superstition, right? But you don't want to cross your fingers. You don't want to walk under ladders. You hold your breath while driving past cemeteries, and God forbid that you ever step on a crack because your mom's in trouble, 
you have surely broken her back, right? Weird superstitions that exist today that we know aren't true, but if you, know, if, you, if you hold to some of these or if you know someone who holds to some of these, maybe you're like, all right, that's fine for you, but they're like, just don't expect me to take these things seriously. As long as that makes you feel better, as long as, you, as long as you feel like you're sleeping on the 14th floor, when we know it's the 13th floor, as long as that makes you feel better, fine. Now, as we conclude our short series, Walking Through the Gospel, this week, as we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, my guess is, is that either for you or for someone you know, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, that this specific part of Christian belief, I literally met someone two days ago that don't, they don't have a problem with that Jesus existed. They don't have a problem that Jesus lived. They don't even have a problem that Jesus died on the cross. The issue that they have is this whole belief that this Jewish guy in the first century actually rose from the dead. And perhaps you or someone you know has taken the resurrection of Jesus Christ and thrown it onto the pile of four-leaf clovers and lucky rabbit's feet. But I want to invite you this morning to open your Bible to Acts chapter 1. And what I want to do this morning is I want to show you four things about the resurrection from Acts chapter 1. And those four things are this. Those four things are the reality of the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, the call of the resurrection, and the hope of the resurrection. The reality, the power, the call, and the hope of the resurrection. And my hope is, is that by the time we get done this morning, that if you're a Christian, that you will be filled with more confidence and more hope as a result of seeing these things in Acts chapter 1. And my hope is that if you're not a Christian, if you think this resurrection thing is just kind of crazy, honestly, my hope this morning is not to, is not to change your mind. It's simply to throw a little rock in your shoe, just a, a couple things to consider that will maybe cause you to at least consider reconsidering the resurrection. So, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so here in the first three verses, what we get is a, is a small glimpse into the reality of the resurrection. Now, it's really easy for us as modern Western people to think that because of our technological advances, our social advances, our psychological advances, to think that we're somehow more enlightened than the people of the past. In other words, it's easy for us to think that, well, that would have been really easy for those super, for those super superstitious people back then to believe in a resurrection, but we're more enlightened than that today. But the reality is, is that this isn't the case at all. That kind of mindset, in fact, towards people in the past is what C.S. Lewis would call chronological snobbery. That for some reason, just because we exist today, we're somehow better than people who existed in the past. And the reality is that people in the past were just as skeptical about a resurrection from the dead as we are 
today. We actually even see this in the scriptures where you see in Matthew chapter 28 that, that as the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain that Jesus had directed them, when Jesus, when they saw Jesus, many of them worshiped, but the scriptures say, but some doubted. There he is resurrected from the dead. They knew he had died. He's revealed himself to them. And yet there's still a handful of people that go, I'm not so sure. Is that really him? Did he really die? Did he really rise? And then you get to John chapter 20 and Jesus appears to his disciples through a locked door. And yet he still has to show them his hands and his side. You see, you kind of see after the resurrection, Jesus is constantly having to prove that he had risen from the dead. And why is he having to do that? It's because even, even like the Jewish people at this time, they believed in a corporate future resurrection. They believed in resurrection, but it wasn't like individual resurrection. It was no, one day, all of us together in the future will be resurrected from the dead. But the whole idea of an individual person rising from the dead was not even a category that they had in their mind. We even see in Acts chapter 26, you know, towards the end of Acts, that, that Paul, as he is attesting to the resurrection, that, the, that Festus, one of the king's kind of uh, sidekicks, you could say, as Paul, like everything Paul is saying about Jesus, there's no response. But the minute he talks about the, resurre the resurrection, Pest, uh, Festus says, you're out of your mind, Paul. Too much study is driving you mad. You see, people then were just as skeptical of the resurrection as we are today. And yet, Christianity spread like wildfire in the ancient world. You see, there's no way to explain the spread of Christianity, especially amongst the Jews. There's no way to explain the spread of Christianity unless the resurrection actually happened. You see, for us, uh, it's very easy to be skeptical of the resurrection because of our belief in science. Right? It's like, well, that's just scientifically impossible. You see, for the Jews, their, their barrier wasn't scientific. Their barrier was actually religious. You, you know, for us today, we go, well, only religious people believe in a resurrection. For, they were the most religious people in all the world. And that was, in fact, the very barrier to their belief in the resurrection. And yet, Christianity spread like wildfire. So if the resurrection didn't actually happen, how do you explain the spread of Christianity, especially among the Jewish people in the first century. Now, some might say that the resurrection was fabricated by the disciples. In fact, if you read through the gospels, they kind of anticipate this, you know, objection that, well, the, that the disciples stole the body and they just kind of made up the whole story. If that's the case, then you need to at least consider why would the disciples fabricate a story that makes them look terrible? And not only that, why would the disciples fabricate a story that they knew would not skyrocket them to the pinnacle of fame and success and power, but instead would bring tremendous suffering to their lives, even to the point of death? You see, most of the disciples died a martyr's death as a result of their ardent belief in the resurrected Christ. You see, many people will die for a lie. People die for lies all the time. Here's what very few people do. Very few people, if, if no one, will die for a lie knowing it's a lie. Not only that, very few people will die for a lie 
and it being a lie that they made up. So that's the reality of the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead and appeared with many convincing proofs. Now look at verse four. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So we have the reality of the resurrection. And here in verses four and five, we have the power of the resurrection. So Jesus spent 40 days proving that he's alive. And he turns to his disciples and he says, now that I'm alive, I need you to do nothing. And you go, what in the world? Like, aren't these the guys that Jesus is going to entrust to spread this message? You know, it's, but it's like, like, like you military guys, this is very much like a hurry up and wait scenario, right? Where it's like, there's this, there's this mission and there's this great thing that's happened. And now the guy that we followed for years that we're so excited about, he's risen from the dead. Finally, we believe it because he's, he's proved it to us over and over again. He's not a ghost. He's like eating with us. And now he's like, hey, you need to do nothing for a little bit. And the disciples are like, this is not a time for vacation. Why? Why? What are you talking about? Why would the Son of God, risen from the dead, tell them to just do nothing? Why? Well, it's because as we're going to see in a few short verses, Jesus is going to give them a mission that, that on their own, they are totally unable to accomplish. You see, Jesus knew something that we all forget all too often. And that is that if you're really going to be a follower of Jesus, you are going to need more than enthusiasm and more than good intentions. Like if you're actually going to be a disciple of Jesus, if you're actually going to live a life where you follow him, it needs to be more than the kind of willpower you exert for your New Year's resolutions. Like you get really excited in the moment and then your treadmill turns into like the most expensive, you know, coat hanger that you've ever bought in your life, right? You dry your clothes on. Like Jesus knows that the mission that he's about to call his people to needs more than good intentions and enthusiasm, but instead that you're going to need the power of God himself living within you. I remember uh, a handful of years ago, my wife and I were walking down Lakeshore Drive, uh, walking along Lake Michigan in Chicago, and we found ourselves, we literally ran into 75,000 people. We did not set out expecting this. This was not our plan. We just wanted to go for a walk. But on North Shore Beach, we ran into literally 75,000 people. And little did we know, we found out as we were kind of amongst the people, that uh, we had run into Red Bull's Flugtag event. Now, if you don't know what Flugtag is, what Flugtag is, is it's an event where people make, they make what they call people-powered flying machines. Because Red Bull gives you wings, right? And so what, what Red Bull does is they build a 30-foot uh, tall pier, and the next picture, you'll probably see this a little bit better. There you go. And uh, people build these little, I don't know what you call them, cars, 
planes, right? And they run off the pier to see how far they can glide. Now, 99.9% of the people fall further than they glide, right? Like directly into the lake. And it's this huge thing. Now, you could, you could put, uh, if Flugtog had a tagline, this happens all around the world, apparently. If Flugtog had a line, it would be endless enthusiasm. Flugtog, endless enthusiasm, zero power. None. Crash and burn into the water. But you see what Jesus is doing here when he tells his disciples to wait. He tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit of God to come upon them. You see, God doesn't give, Jesus doesn't give his disciples a God-sized mission with flugtog power. You see, Jesus doesn't give you today, Christian, a God-sized mission, a God-sized vision for your life, a call to God-sized obedience in your life, and then give you flugtog power. But no, you see what these disciples were waiting for then? They were waiting for Jesus to ascend and then to send his Holy Spirit. What the disciples were called to wait for then, when you become a Christian, when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior by faith, you get immediately what they had to wait several days for. The Holy Spirit of God will come and indwell in your life, in your heart and mind, and will begin to change you from the inside out. And you'll have the Holy Spirit of God, the power of God living within you because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And boy, do we need it. Because he doesn't just give us power. There's also a call. Verse, look at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in all Judea and Samaria into the end of the earth. Now it's amazing. So, they, so Jesus says, uh, wait, and then they ask him, a really bad question. Now, it's amazing how much they get wrong in these 10 words, right, of this, of this question in verse 6. They're asking about the kingdom of God. They say, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Now, the kingdom of God, you need to understand, isn't primarily a place. The kingdom of God, though there's aspects of that, the kingdom of God is primarily about a person. In other words, you, you could think of, when you, when you think of the kingdom of God or you hear about the kingdom of God in Scripture, you read it, it might be helpful to kind of mentally replace kingdom for kingship. Because what the kingdom of God is, is the kingdom of God is God's rule and God's reign over God's people in God's place at God's time. God's rule and God's reign over God's people at God's place in God's time. The kingdom of God is all about the king. So they get wrong what the kingdom is. They get wrong 
who the kingdom is for. Notice, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? So they get wrong who it's for. God's rule and reign isn't just for Israel, but it's for Jews and Gentiles alike, for all kinds of people. And then they get wrong when it will come. Are you restoring it right now? And Jesus is like, listen. I mean, this is basically his response. Listen. Don't worry about it. It's basically what he said. He's like, it's like the kingdom has come in part, and yet it is still yet to come in full. But when it comes is not your concern. Your concern is to now take this message and to take it to people who are part of this kingdom who don't know it yet. That God has selected for himself people to live within his kingdom. And your job is to go proclaim this message and call those people to God himself. Not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Here, near, and far. Now notice... Notice what Jesus isn't calling his disciples to do. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, and you will be my rescuers. He doesn't say, and you will be my saviors. He doesn't even say, and you will be my pastors. You will be my professionals. Now, what does he say? He says, you will be my witnesses. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be a witness? What it means to be a witness, witnesses are simply people who have seen something and then report what they've seen. That's all. That's all that they are. That's it. And you see, when Jesus calls us as Christians to be his witnesses, he's not placing the weight of other people's salvation on our shoulders. He's not calling us to that. He's simply saying, hey, Christian, tell people who I am and tell people what I've done and then help them see how who I am and what I've done is available to them too. That's all that that means. When God calls us as Christians to be his witnesses, all he's telling us to do is say, tell them who I am and what I've done. And whether they accept it or reject it or not is actually not in your hands. You see, and, and you go, so that's it, that's, I can see it, Jake, that's easy for you, you're a pastor and you're way oversimplifying this because you don't know who I know, right? And I, I get that, and, but why, why would we need the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit of God to be able to do something that seems, that I can stand up here and say, that seems so simple. Why would we need that? It's because Jesus knows that what we have to overcome there's two main things we're going to have to overcome. We're going to need his Holy Spirit power to first overcome our own fear. And then we're going to need his Holy Spirit power to overcome the outside opposition that will come as we walk as his disciple. So the reality of the resurrection, the power of the, res the resurrection, the call of the resurrection, but finally we see in this passage the hope of the resurrection. Look at verse 9. After he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. 
While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Now, this moment is what many people call the ascension of Christ. The ascension. And it's perhaps the most neglected moment in Jesus's life. Because we talk a lot about Jesus's death, and rightly so. I'm not trying to minimize that. And we talk a lot about his resurrection. We've talked a lot about his resurrection this morning. And that's good. We should talk about his resurrection. But here's the thing. When Jesus ascended into heaven, when Jesus left this earth, his going away unlocked a few glorious things that should give us tremendous hope for today. And I just want to unpack three of those glorious things for us this morning real quick. The first one, because Jesus is alive and ascended, we can now have an ever-present intimate relationship with him. You say, that's confusing. How did him leaving make a way for us to have an intimate relationship with him now? Well, consider, consider John's account in John chapter 20, right? Where Jesus is risen from the dead. Mary comes to the tomb. She doesn't know that he's risen from the dead. In fact, she comes to an empty tomb, thinks that someone has stolen his body and encounters Jesus in the garden. She thinks that he is a gardener until he opens his mouth. And then she just reflexively can't help it. And she grabs onto him, like gives him this big bear hug. You can kind of envision this. And then Jesus in John 20 verse 17 says this, says, don't cling to me. Now we can read that and we can kind of go like, we can, we can read into it that he's kind of annoyed, right? Where it's like, it's like, oh, I'm not, I'm not really a hugger. Like that's not what Jesus is saying though. You know, like imagine it's more like the sense that you get in the original language is more that's kind of like, imagine Jesus's arms pinned to his side. He's like, Mary, don't cling to me. Like she's squeezing the breath out of him because, because just think of it. She thought she lost him. Her dear friend and savior. She thought he was gone and now he's back and she doesn't want to lose him again. He says, don't cling to me since I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and tell them that I am ascending to my father and to your father, to your God, and to my God. It makes all the sense in the world why she would cling on to him. And yet Jesus says, let go of me because I need to leave. Because Mary, unless you let me leave, if you don't let me leave, I can't send my Holy Spirit to be with you always. You see, you think that by holding on to me that you, that, that I'll just be with you forever. But Mary, if you just hold on to me and, and keep me from leaving, you can be with me for a little bit, but you're not gonna be with me all the time. I'm gonna be in different places. I'm gonna be doing different things. You're gonna be in different places doing different things. It's actually good that I go so that I can be with you always. Do you see what this means? My guess is that many of us think that it, would be, that it would be better for our faith and better for the faith of others if Jesus were still here on earth. It's very easy to think that. And yet Jesus anticipates that impulse when he says to his disciples in John chapter 16, verse seven, he says, it's, it is for your benefit that I go away. 
Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. You see, without the ascension of Jesus, without Jesus going away, if Jesus were still on earth, we would maybe get time with him a little bit. Imagine that line to see Jesus. We get just a little bit of time. Maybe maybe you've been in a meet and greet after a concert. You only get a little bit of time, maybe. But because Jesus is alive and ascended, we don't get just a little bit of time with Jesus. We get his ever-living presence constantly with us every minute, every second of every day. We get Jesus with us always, at all times, in all places. So because Jesus is alive and ascended, we can have an ever-present, intimate relationship with him. Number two, because Jesus is alive and ascended, we have a constant and consistent advocate. You see, when Jesus ascended, he didn't just ascend to, you know, I don't know, if, I don't know if jet skis are in heaven. That'd be great if they were. I don't know, you know, it's like he didn't just ascend and is now like on vacation in heaven, right? No, he ascended to the right hand of the Father and ever lives to intercede for us. Now, my guess is, is that many of us, to varying degrees, we're very aware that wherever we go, whatever we do, whatever we say, we're very aware that, how do I say it? We're very aware of the verdicts that are being made about us. Here's what I mean. Probably when you woke up this morning and you decided what to wear, you decide how you, whenever you go to work, you go to class, whatever, what you have in your mind is not just what do I want to wear, but what do I think other people will think about what I'm wearing? And what verdict will they give me based on that? Or maybe not how you look, but how you act, how you speak, a presentation you have to give. Or, or, and, and you think that because you know what you're doing. When you walk into a room, that not only are you receiving verdicts, but you yourself are also passing verdicts. Like, do I like that? Do I not like that? Are they attractive? Or are they not attractive? Do I think they're funny or do I think they're boring? All these kinds of things. We're very aware of the verdicts that are being made. And we try to control the verdicts that others make toward us. In fact, this is one reason, not the only reason, but I think one of the reasons why tolerance has been traded for affirmation. Where it used to be, you can think what you think, you can believe what you believe, you can do what you do, and fine, but I don't have to believe that, think that, or affirm that. But instead now, that if you, if you don't only just tolerate something, but you don't affirm someone and their self-proclaimed identity or whatever it is, then somehow that's hateful. Why? It's because we're constantly trying to manage and control the verdicts that are being made towards us. But here's what we get with the resurrection and the ascension is we get relief from the burden of managing verdicts. 
Because when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, we now have an advocate before the Father who pleads our case on the basis of his perfection and not ours. On the basis of his attractiveness and not ours. On the basis of his worthiness and not ours. Do you see what this means? This, This means that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we can be freed from image management and identity construction. You say, I'm not a construction worker. All of us are construction workers. And we're all trying to construct an identity and we're all trying to construct an image that people will give us positive verdicts for us. But in the, in the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, we have a consistent and a constant advocate before the Father who pleads our case on our behalf on the basis of who he is and not on the basis of who we are. We no longer get the verdict we deserve, but we get the verdict he deserves, which frees us from constantly, never-endingly trying to manage the verdicts that are made about us. So we have ever-present relationship, we have a constant advocate, and finally, because Jesus is alive and ascended, we have an unshakable hope for the future. And what is this unshakable hope? This unshakable hope is a hope that because Jesus is resurrected and has ascended, that if you are in Christ, if you are a Christian, that this world is not your home and death is not the end. Which means that for whatever you're going through, whatever your ailment, whatever your affliction, whatever your anxiety whatever your circumstance, even if it kills you, you can know that death is not the end, but that there is coming a day when those who believed in the risen Christ will also be risen from the dead. That there is a future resurrection that awaits those who are in Christ. This is, this is Paul's encouragement to the Thessalonian believers in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Check this out. Here's what he says. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, who have died, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Why? For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. But the Lord himself will descend from heaven. This is what the angel said at the tomb or after he ascended, like he's coming back again in this same way. The Lord himself will ascend, will descend from heaven with a shout, with the, arching, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Here's what's fascinating about this picture. You go, that sounds weird. Here's what's fascinating. In the ancient world, this would have been a very uh, common picture, right? Why? Because when when a victorious king would return with his army from battle, here's what would happen. The trumpets in the city would sound. And before the king and his army even got to the city, the trumpets would sound, the people would run out of the city. 
meet the king and join the king in the celebration as he returned back into the city. That is exactly what is happening here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You see, what we get with the hope of our future resurrection is the hope that one day we will also be raised and meet our victorious king outside of the city. That one day, that as he comes and brings, a, and brings in a new heavens and a new earth and establishes a new city, that we will live forever in a new city where Christ is king and death is no more. Why is it? Why is it good news that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. It's good news because it means that his resurrection power is available to you if you would believe in him. It's good news because his resurrection power is in you and empowers you now for faithful living as you step into his call and mission for your life. And it's good news because wherever you are, whatever you're going through, you can know that Christ is with you, that he is advocating for you, and that you have an unshakable hope that one day all that is wrong will be made right. That one day all that is broken will be put back together. And that one day he will make all the sad things come untrue. Jesus lived, Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. And he is coming back. And friends, that's still good news for us today. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we look forward to the day where you will sound the trumpet, where we will join your entourage and follow you back into the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, where one day all death and dying will be gone, where one day all sadness will be undone, where one day all suffering will be relieved. And as we wait, would you empower us by your spirit to be a people who step into and embrace your call in our lives to be your witnesses here, near, and far away. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.